0: Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky.
1: I'm Steven Zuber.
0: I'm Jay Sticky. And we have a guest with us today. Aloha Travis Don Kailikea. This is uh, a guy that I met in... A guy? That sounds disrespectful. A a, a strapping (laughs) young man. (laughs) Uh, This is a scholar and a gentleman that I met when my trip to Hawaii in uh, January. We got to talking, and I learned a lot about the, or at least somewhat, about the Hawaiian Separatist Movement, which I thought was really interesting. And so I wanted to have Travis on here to talk about that, as well as, in general, the political situation in Hawaii. When I met you, you were a tour guide, but you had also just recently finished a degree in, I believe... Political science? Am I remembering correctly? It's been a couple months.
2: No, I finished my undergraduate degree in political science back in twenty eleven and I wanted to move on to master's program, but you know, life gets in the way. But um oh, yeah. the subject of my master's program was the location of Hawaii well what I would like to do the thesis I was trying to walk in with is uh by eighteen forty, the Hawaiian kingdom had embassies in thirteen different countries. And I think another six countries have minor diplomatic relations and therefore just consulates. What became of these buildings, and those places, no one could say. So I could, I, I at least can say that I went to the UK and I found uh, the location of the Hawaiian Embassy and the consulate.
0: Oh. And I wanted
2: that to be a thing that just can, kind of continued.
0: What is the building used for now?
2: Um, you know, in the UK, pretty much none of them are the same. Um, there's really nothing left over. There's a couple places like the building in Edinburgh and Leith and the building in Glasgow are the same on the outside, but mm. nothing on this, nothing is there left. I could at least say, you know, this is more or less the GPS point of where the Hawaiian flag used to fly, and um, you know, there was—I I always wanted to go check out the one in Hamburg, Germany, and any of the ones in France.
0: Was that because in Britain they lost it due to the World War II bombing?
2: Ah, uh, you know, I—I um, I can't say for sure that's that's why that street went down or why that particular building was gone. In a lot of mm-hmm. these places, um, I think a lot of it's—that's a good I question. I though. didn't dig into that part of it.
0: Okay, I wanted to kick this off by. Um, Mentioning just how much people don't realize uh, that Hawaii was very recently an independent nation, Um, I I think my favorite example of this is when the Ben Affleck movie uh, Pearl Harbor came out a few years ago, Uh, they used throughout the movie the... American flag everyone today is familiar with, with, with the 50 stars on it, which was uh, horribly uh, historically inaccurate. Well, I'm not sure about it, horribly, but it was very historically inaccurate because uh, Hawaii wasn't a state yet and nobody that was working on the movie like, thought of that or noticed it at the time. Um, what was the state of Hawaii uh, at the beginning of World War II? Was it a protectorate or a colony? What, what did they call it?
2: My position here is not going to change whether or not we're talking through World War II or now. It's, it's an occupied nation.
0: But nation.
2: more to the point, um yeah, it would be a territory. Hawaii was quote a territory in eighteen ninety eight
0: How did this happen? Because it was a an independent nation, like you said, and a monarchy with its own diplomatic relations with a lot of countries. Um how did it end up a state? Well
2: take a moment here real fast um and just clarify a couple things. So I'm just one I mean, I like the way you describe me as one guy. <laughs> <laughs> I like. I like. to tell everybody on my van, you know, at the end of my at the end of my tour, like, you know, what I'm really hoping for here is that someday in the future, you folks will be sitting around in your living room. Maybe somebody will watch something on TV about Hawai'i or read something about Hawai'i, and you'll look at each other and you'll say something like, "You remember that guy on that van? He talked about this." <laughs> that's that's what I'm really hoping for. And um, so just on how the guy from Kona, uh, the name Kaili comes to me a little bit later, but that that might be that might take up too much time for the podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd best be described as a Hawaiian national in waiting. So that means I have no choice but to support the reformation of the Hawaiian government so that I can get a minister of the interior to deliver my naturalization test, which I'm sure I will ace. Um, So you know, especially when people hear me talk, lots of assumptions can be made. So just wanted to clarify, I'm 0% Kanaka But when we talk about the Hawaiian kingdom, you get ethnic Hawaiian people. And that's, that's ethnic Hawaiian people is the Kanaka But when okay. the queen was overthrown in 1893, our largest group of subjects, citizens, was Japanese. Okay. So the Hawaiian kingdom is not this tribal confederation that most of North America think of it as. It was a nation state with a cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic
0: population. The... Japanese uh, were all Hawaiian citizens?
2: You know, um, a lot of them were Hawaiian citizens, but this actually gets right to the heart of your question. So we'll start launching into that. Um,
0: was it the majority of the population was uh, non-native? They were Japanese?
2: Uh, largest, the largest ethnic. No okay. particular group could have been called the, ma- the majority at the time.
1: Gotcha. As, okay. As and of now, we're... as far as racial composition of Hawaii makes up 37%, it's the largest single group.
2: Uh, Yeah, I I like to say, um, to help with the narration of the history itself, you know, Japanese people are our largest ethnic group from about 1890 to 1990. Nowadays, it's Filipino, uh, largely, you know, Tagalog speakers of uh, Ilkana and Visayans.
0: What's caused the Filipino population to increase so much? Has it been immigration?
2: Yeah, I think part of it is going to be immigration. But, you know, there's a large Filipino population, even during the time period of the kingdom anyway.
0: And were these uh, Japanese people or Filipinos at the time, were they citizens of the kingdom as well?
2: Oh, some, some were, but, um, that's why I think, um, that's why I want to come back to the question you stated. Uh, i have you say it one more time, because I think you, I think the question is, how did Hawaii become a state?
0: How did Hawaii become a state then?
2: So let us start there, um, because now I'm just going to be weaving the tale, I suppose. And so for most people who want to discuss the overthrow, when you think about Hawaii history, we have two dynasties in the Hawaiian kingdom. We have two different ruling families. The Kamehameha family forms one country out of all the islands. I'm going to say 1795. That's the last big battle. And from 1795 to 1874, the Kamehamehas ruled the Hawaiian. In 1874, we go through quite the change. Then. We go from the Kamehameha dynasty to the Kalakaua
0: Kawanamakaua dynasty. How did they switch to the new dynasty?
2: Oh, oh. So the Hawaiian kingdom was a constitutional monarchy. And in 1874, it became clear we were out of heirs and successors for the, for the Hawaiian throne. Actually, in 1872, that became clear when King Kamehameha V, Lot Kapuāiwa. He was getting sick, um, you know, so he was kind of restricted to his bed and on his birthday the doctors are like, Yo, your Highness, you really should I don't know, name an heir <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and Lot and Lot says, Nah, nah, the good lord won't think on my birthday. Oh boy. Well, he was dead a few hours later. And Yeah, right? for real. Right? <laughs> and so so yeah, that means the Hawaiian Kingdom had an issue, right? We had no heir, no successor to the throne. There's a vacant throne. You guys know it usually happens when there's an empty throne, right?
0: Civil war, yeah.
2: Yeah, we all seen that TV show, I trust. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, but lucky for us, the Hawaiian kingdom was a constitutional monarchy from 1840 onward. Uh, thanks to Kawi Kei King Kamehameha III, our kingdom looked a little bit like the UK. We had a House of Lords, a House of Commons, a High Court, and a Prime Minister we call the Nui, who worked under the king on the executive branch. And according to our constitution, should there be no heir and no successor, to take the throne, instead of fighting about it, we're supposed to have an election from among the available high, high chiefs and elect the king. That's, you know, remarkable. In my understanding of world history, I can only highlight for you four countries that have elected a monarch. The Hawaiian <laughs> Kingdom, the Holy Roman Empire, Poland, and hey. Belgium. Okay. Uh, Belgium, I don't, that one, I don't really want to talk about that one. <laughs> it worked out real well for the Belgians, real bad for the Congolese.
3: The whole thing here. Yeah. Not that it's not equally fascinating, but that's not what we're here to talk about.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that puts the Hawaiian Kingdom on a short list, no? Uh, so in 1872, after Kamehameha V dies, we are like King William Charles Lunalilo. And this guy's on character on in his own right. Uh, Lunalilo was a big fan of Shakespeare. There was a couple times Lunalilo got a little too drunk and decided he wanted to ride around Honolulu rehearsing the entirety of Macbeth on horseback. Wow. <laughs> so um, I, I feel like in the short time we have, that's that's the characters Lunalilo. would like to get across. The guy was witty, literary master. Um, And he ruled as king for a year. He died the following year in eighteen seventy three of the and Lunalilo also failed to name an heir successor. Um, he might have wanted to name Queen Emma. It might have been that Luna Lilo himself, a bit of an ag- advocate of democracy, and he failed to name an heir successor on purpose. Hard to say exactly the end there, but that's what happened. So, you know, a year later, we're back. We're back to having to have a royal election to decide who. And uh, Luna Lilo, so although, although you know, I'm not saying, you know, you King Kamehameha one before five, and then you have King William Charles Lunalilo, who is, by all technicality, King Kamehameha VI. He does not take the name. He feels slighted by the greater family. But, um, but yeah, when Munalilo dies and we go back to this election in 1874, we have our second royal election to elect our next monarch. And we elect David Kavika La'ameha Kalakaua, better known as King Kalakaua, also called the Merry Monarch, whose name this big hula tournament is happening right now, the Merry Monarch oh. Hula Festival. But importantly, David Kalaakaua is not a Kamehameha. He belongs to a different high chiefly family. He belongs to a different dynasty, the Kalaakaua Kawanamakaua dynasty. And when we talk today about the current crown princess of Hawaii, well, there are differing opinions on the matter. <laughs> I would say it's pretty clear, personally, that the obvious con princess of Hawaii, her name is Abigail Kwananakoa Campbell. So notice the name Kwananakoa. She's part of the second dynasty in that regard. And um, she's about 98, if I remember correctly. <laughs> she's worth about $300 million. She lives primarily in Southern California. But... um oh, wow. the- the medical care and whatnot is better. Over. Also, she owns lands you know, from Southern California all the way to Northern Washington, of course. House on every island. The family made a lot of money doing real estate. You know, I, have, I don't want to come off too negatively about that princess. The thing is, when you first hear about her, you're like, what? But the more I got to know about her, the more I realized she's, she's a very, she's more, more benevolent and active than I thought. She's just. Okay. And her nephew, Quentin Kawanamakoa Campbell, is largely kind of next in line after that. Okay. But uh, yeah, so it's worth noting. Um, that we have two dynasties. As you learn more about Hawaiian history, that's an important fact to keep in mind. It will help you understand some of Hawaiian. The so, there's lots of Kamehameha's alive today. You know, there's many people who would like to be Kamehameha the Eight, um, you know, continue to support royal organizations, and what are clearly the titled lords of Hawaii. Anyway, my opinion is that the Kamehameha family no longer has claim to the throne, and I think it's a, think it's a relatively high, well shared opinion. But Kamehameha the Great had like 56 plus children. There's lots of Kamehamehas.
0: Is that something that is a point of contention within the the current movement? Which royal family is the rightful successor?
2: It used to be. It used to be a more larger point of contention. I think. I think mm-hmm. um, in the modern era, um, it's kind of become less because people realize that's not the issue that needs to be on the front burner. Mm-hmm. Um, being a constitutional monarchy, we technically don't actually have to have a named monarch to have a functioning government, right? Mm-hmm. We have all of the these offices are spelled out. That, that issue could potentially go on the back burner for 100 years uh, until we're ready to have an election. But um,
0: does it, the monarch, used to be,
2: it used to be the, a point of good
0: Does the monarch not have a great deal of power then in this constitutional monarchy?
2: Uh, you know, um, it depends on what constitution we look at. The Hawaiian kingdom went through a couple constitutional revisions. Um, in the first one, the monarch, as designed by Kamehameha III is relatively moderate. I mean, Kamehameha III was a freaking absolute monarch who gave up absolute power voluntarily and made himself a constitutional monarch because he thought, he, he thought that was what was good for his, he was, um, Influenced heavily by the French, and so therefore his constitution is beautiful. Uh, But then later on, Kamehameha V gives more power to them. Uh, And then later on, King David Kalaakawa is forced into a kind of corner and forced to sign a new constitution. A lot of the power from the monarch into the hands of the.
0: Is there there broad consensus as to which constitutional version would be re implemented?
2: Uh, I wish there was a broad consensus about anything we talk about today. Sadly, there's not. Uh, that's actually part of the greater issue is, of course, no broad consensus. Okay. Uh, but, um, yeah, I would say that, um, so to clarify, a lot of the rhetoric you will here from me today, originally espoused by a man named Dr. Keanu Tsai. Uh, uh that name sounds familiar. His cousin is Keanu Reeves. Oh! Keanu, Keanu Reeves, my understanding is from Hilo. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Doctor Sai is a fascinating man on his own right. You can check out the HawaiianKingdomGovernment.org website. Mm-hmm. He actually has the various Hawaiian Kingdom constitutions available online for your perusal.
0: Which parousal, one does parousal. he perusal? Perusal sounds weird. Perusal. <laughs> 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 eh, either one, it's die. Like which one? Which one does he prefer of the constitutions?
2: Um, you know, so say it's some of this. I would say. Uh-huh. I don't know where his position is now. Um, I should also clarify, I've been working full time for many years now. I don't really have a lot of time to pay attention to what's been happening. I mean, mm-hmm. I put in a lot of testimony, oral testimony for county council bills and whatnot on my island, but, um, as uh, so I try, you know, I'm involved in my direct local community, but I don't, I haven't, I'm not sure what Dr. Kownasai is exactly up to today, but when I was involved with this as an undergrad and just general auxiliary person, um, I think the general understanding was legally we would have to revert to this bayonet constitution, the one that was forced on David Kalaakaua. But the silver lining is because that constitution neutered the monarch as hard as it did, it makes it easier for us to ignore who is the monarch for a long
0: time. Okay. So how did this constitution get forced by bayonet point onto, onto the monarchy?
2: Uh, you see how fast I get on tangents, but I'm trying mm-hmm. to stay focused. My main course here, as you might have detected, was the royal election of 1874. And to get to the one question, and this is kind of where I got weird when you asked me, you know, were the auto Filipino and Japanese citizens? Yes and no. The Hawaiian kingdom itself being a relatively modern country, they have naturalization, all of that. And this was part of the debate that leads us to the overthrow in the first place. Shall our Asian immigrant laborers, shall they have a path to citizenship? Mm-hmm. Shall they not? What a modern debate that thing is right there. Um, because, of course, you know, I think the king and the royalty of Hawaii were more than pleased to welcome these people in as citizens and have them voting because they knew that they would vote for the king's party, the king's platform. Um, but, of course, their owners, I mean, excuse me, their employers, uh, the sugarcane planters did not want their employees uh, voting. So this this becomes, I'll come back to as part of the greater conflict issue at hand. but. Um, again, I want to revisit my 1874 thing here. So as you learned a little bit ago, King David with the Mary Monarch, was elected to power in 1874, thus changing our dynasty and changing our foreign policy direction. So lots of kamaaina here in Hawaii. We know King David Kalakaua was elected. We're taught that in school. What we're not taught is who his opponent was in the election. It was Queen Emma Kalele'o Nalani Naya Ruk, the widow of King Kamehameha IV, the great-grandniece of King Kamehameha I. She's personal friends with Queen Victoria of England. We have, like, I don't know how many years of letters between Queen Emma of Hawaii and Queen Victoria of England. They met face-to-face. Queen Emma and King Kamehameha IV converted our royal family to Anglicanism. Queen Emma was an Anglican. She belonged to the British church. Hmm. In fact, she's a quarter British. Her grandfather was a British sailor. When she met Queen Victoria in person, Queen Victoria was quite smitten with her and gave our queen a lock of her hair which is kind of disgusting, you know, but I assure you that was a big deal in the 1800s. Uh, but um, anyway, so we're talking in 1874, we have the pro-British Kamehameha Queen, Queen Emma. Um, oh, by the by, remember, she's the widow of Kamehameha IV. So that means you had a single lady running for head of state in 1874. Queen Emma versus King David Kalakaua. I, spo- I guess I guess already did the spoiler. Uh, he won. But King David Kalaakaua is pretty assuredly the pro-American side of Hawaiian kingdom politics. When we look at his political campaigning and advertising, he's literally campaigning himself as the friend of American business, the friend of the sugar planters. Um, take it you're
3: not a fan of him?
2: I mean, I don't want to... I mean, yes. I mean, in the sense that you can tell I love Queen Emma. Uh, David Kalakaua himself... I have a big a bit of mixed feelings about his kingship, but uh, I think you will find that he is, of course the beloved Mary monarch. But when we look at our newspapers at the time period, he did it took him a little while to get to that beloved status. He was not super popular at first.
3: Hmm. Curious what caused him to be unpopular versus popular. Um, like what won people over to his side eventually.
2: um you know I think I think part of it is the changing arrows and the continuation. Uh, while Queen Emma was alive, this continues to be a source of consternation for his government because pretty much anything he does, he has to make sure there's an open seat for Queen Emma, even if she doesn't come. But um, uh, there's, and, and the Queen's party, by the way, takes over the legislature. So there's much gridlock. Mm. <laughs> How modern is that? Uh, so the executive was one different party than the legislature. And so therefore, uh, legislative gridlock. Um, but uh, oh my goodness. Um, I would say, G, uh, Jace, the best answer to that question was a concerted effort on the part of Kalahakawa to take care of his people and be a good king. That's mm. what changed. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the election itself is fascinating, gentlemen. So I've tried to set the stage here. So we get the pro British Queen Emma uh, versus the pro British Kamehameha Queen versus the pro American sort of businessman, David Kalahakawa. And this election, ooh, it, has, it has features today. We all going to recognize you. Ready? First feature CD campaign funding, dark money in support of both candidates to support directly their political advertising. We don't even know where some of that money came from to this very day. Uh, and because of that CD dark money campaign funding, of course, our royal election in 1874 was plagued by accusations of foreign interference and collusion. Wow, that sounds familiar. Both of our candidates got in trouble for appearing before Hawaiian court judges and ministers and saying stuff like, hey, hey, if I get elected, maybe we don't have to investigate this thing over here. <laughs> um, you know, the mudslinging about each other's families and heritages became commonplace in the newspaper, the vicious mudslinging. The Hawaiian Kingdom's newspapers was much like Facebook today. I mean, in a sense, people like to troll each other and whatnot. Letters to the editors. Um, I'd love to read but, some of
3: those. Yeah, some of mm-hmm.
2: it's just awesome. And the David King David Kalakaua genealogist tried to say Queen, Queen Emma's grandmother was a man. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> um, I remember I came across I came across this particular like set of, of exchanges where the the people were discussing the candidates' finger sizes and at first I was like oh my gosh <laughs> finger sizes Is this 20- uh... wait wait I feel like I just heard this sometime in twenty sixteen finger sizes <laughs> um, but yeah. you know as as I got more familiar with it what I realized that I was reading was um, both of our candidates for the throne are notable musicians so that's why finger size was being brought up <laughs> because they were musicians. So, a little higher brow than the modern day stuff. But during this election and looking at people's, uh, you know, the political advertising, looking at people's, um, you know, reactions to some of this, the election, you know, I, I'm sorry I didn't brush up. The election continues longer than you might think. It's like most of 1874 is engaged in this royal election, or part of 1873 and the first part of
3: 1874. Oh, wow. Well. Um, hey, who so gets to vote in these elections? I forget, um, I'm not sure if you said that already.
2: I did not. Uh, sadly, the Hawaiian Kingdom, the voting, um, deter- the voting was relatively restricted. Um, off De- t- depending on which time we're looking at, you either have to like pass a particular literacy test, or you have to own land, uh, or you have to be male. There are some times of this that it gets a little restrictive and looks a lot like a modern democracy.
0: Could the Japanese workers on the sugar plane, uh, sugar cane plantations, were they allowed to vote?
2: No, not at first. Uh, if you come in as an immigrant, like with a green card, of course, you have very little ability to change the government. The, the big fight was whether or not we make them into citizens. How many um,
0: have they been there for like multiple generations or were they recent immigrants?
2: Japanese are slightly more recent. Um, in my, and, you know, I, want, I just want to caution everybody today. I'm, I'm one guy who used to be really, really well studied. Um, so <laughs> used to be being the key uh, point here. Um, so, you know, in my understanding, I, uh, we see very early on in the kingdom's history, you get the British Americans coming out, Germans coming out, Chinese people coming out. Um, Korean people actually got out here. I think in a decent number, even before Japanese people, the Japanese come later because the sugarcane planters are clamming for more and more cheap labor for their sugarcane plantation. And, you know, the Hawaiian people were dying off in droves disease. We lost like nine tenths of our population in like a hundred years, um, so they needed some sort of source of cheap labor, and at first they wanted to open the doors to American workers. And I think that um, that part kind of scared the Hawaiian royalty, so they said, "No, we're going to pick some someplace else." And the sugar planters were like, "Well, then where else?" Anyway, David Kalakawa, King David Kalakawa himself, an interesting modern Renaissance man of a king, I mean, he's the first reigning monarch to circumnavigate the globe. He's got several titles, you know, published. He's got several books. He's got twenty maybe 2030 original compositions on piano and guitar uh he's the guy that popularized the instrument we call the ukulele uh so kalakawa part of part of his world travel like his first like i'm going around the world deal part of it was diplomatic and uh part of it was trying to solve this question of where we shall import uh mass amounts of labor from so while kalakawa is traveling around the world he's looking at all these different cultures and when he went to japan in Nippon, David Kalakawa was like, wow, wow, look at the way the Japanese treat each other with the bowing. They're so respectful. This is the most Hawaiian thing I've seen <laughs> in all my travels. And so he started to make those inroads with, uh, I believe, Meiji at the time and, um, and set it all up so that it was David Kalakawa that determined that the floodgates shall be open to Japan. And that is where we are later. And um, so the, I would say the Japanese start, don't start arriving in mass until the 1870s.
0: So how long does he reign for?
2: Uh, David Kalaakawa's reign is 1874 to 1891. Oh, and let's revisit that election real fast, gentlemen. One more thing. So after... And I'm sorry, I mean, I will, I just will go ahead and say it again, because that was a good question, Jace, uh, is who gets to vote? Largely men, wealthy landed men. Well, not necessarily, it doesn't have to be wealthy, but people with their own property. yeah. Yeah, and then can pass literacy tests and whatnot. And I think, I'm not sure if it was ever opened up for females. Um, but, so, this election of 1874, you have all these very modern issues, the you know, accusations of foreign interference and collusion, dark money, blah, 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 blah. So the election day comes, and... Um, <laughs> Fun fact, the Hawaiian Kingdom had a popular vote. This the popular vote wasn't that old. The popular vote for the monarch in the Hawaiian Kingdom was was made during that previous election because David Kalākaua tried to tell the you know the king elect Lunalilo in 1873 uh why, this first election. He said, "Oh, you you only win because the people don't get a vote." And Lunalilo was like, "Well, you think so? Well, the people are going to get a vote to show you how much they love me." And when King Lunalilo was elected, not only did he win a large portion of the popular vote, but he, of course, he won the legal bearing vote, the one that matters, the, the House of Lords vote, the Electoral right. College vote. Um, so, but in Gunalilo, as you heard, he died a year later of tuberculosis. So so now we're back to this election of 1874 I was talking about. And in this election, depending on what pollster and source we're looking at here, it would appear that Queen Emma won like 70% of the popular vote. Uh-huh. But, but David that Kla- one doesn't matter. Yeah, David Klaakau won like seventy percent of the House of Lords vote. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and so so the House of Lords comes together and they vote, and David Klaakau is king elect, and they tell the courier, Okay, get in the carriage, take these messages to the rest of the kingdom. You tell everybody David Klaakau is the king. And so and then the guy goes up to the top of Ali, our legislature building, to address the crowd that was in front of our legislature, our capital. Um, and I don't know, thousand plus people were there that day waiting outside the legislature to hear the results of the election. And when it was announced that David Kalaakawa was king-elect, uh, they, uh, they turned furious and they attacked our, our legislature. Um, so this mob of angry people who was unhappy with the, the result of the election, <laughs> and I don't blame them. I mean, this is where you know I like to make these comparisons to modern elections, but here we just strayed very far from a modern American election. When was the last time an American president won 70% of the popular vote? They don't have. Um, so anyway, um. yeah, so these people, they attacked the legislature building. That poor guy that was supposed to get in the carriage and tell the rest of the kingdom that David Clark, oh, was king-elect, yeah, they seized upon his carriage, ripped it apart with their bare hands, and pretty much beat him to death with pieces of his own carriage. And then they swarmed <laughs> into the building Um. and they began attacking lords of Hawaii. Some of them were thrown out the second-story window. Um. And there's this very interesting episode where I, I, you know, okay, I might be wrong about this. I'm pretty certain the guy in question was our our foreign men, a Scotsman named Robert Crichton Wiley. And as these rioters um attacked our legislature building, they came to the hall of like the Hawaiian Kingdom records and they were ready to just, like, burn everything down and destroy it. And this Scotsman convinced them not to do it. And thank God, because those land titles today are of course still helping Hawaiian people reclaim their land in the a legal sense. And um yeah, so, so then so in order to calm down in order to calm down the population of Honolulu, because it took like 48 hours to deal with, you know, to deal with this, this episode. Because the people of Honolulu were inconsolable. Um, David Kalaakawa lands two, th- excuse me, two regiments of American Marines and a regiment of British Marines. You got to remember by this time, David Kalaakawa, the Hawaiian Kingdom, have already been the main halfway point in the Pacific for like 100 years or so. There are always always foreign warships somewhere nearby. So he, he brings in these Americans and British to control his own people. And uh, he smartly <laughs> sends the British regiment to go deal with Queen Emma. And it would appear that when the British showed up, Queen Emma was like, yeah, let's go get this guy. We'll knock him off his... Oh, you guys are here to arrest us. Oh, whoops.
1: <laughs> um,
2: and, but, you know, Queen Emma, and you see this a lot with Hawaiian monarchs, they really gave a shit uh, about their people. Well, that's probably not the nice way to say it. But they ga- they cared. They cared about their people. And Um, I'll go ahead and make the point that I don't care what system of government we're talking. What matters is, like, are the rulers making practical policy that affects the lives of the... Forget ideology. What are the people being served, you know? And in the case of Hawaii's monarchy in the 1800s, I think, yes, they cared deeply. They tried very hard. Um, But, um, yeah, so Queen Emma, when all of her supporters went to jail, she bailed them all out. And this becomes kind of a Hawaiian tradition, bailing your supporters out of jail. (laughs) And... uh, like the current so, Crown Princess, she bailed the first, the first like couple dozen guys that was arrested on Monaco in twenty fifteen. She bailed them out of jail, and she said, um, "I just don't want to see Hawaiian guys going to jail over there.
0: Is this where uh, the foreign foreign military powers start taking a direct hand in Hawaiian politics?
2: Uh yes and no. Um, th- there's always there's always kind of like this push and pull with the colonial powers throughout the eighteen hundreds. But um, I would say I'm highlighting that particular event, him landing foreign troops, because this sets a precedent. That will, come and come, that will become important in 1893 with the overthrow of his sister and the landing of, of American Marines to interfere with the Hawaiian politics. And, um, um, and then, one other thing to bring up real fast about that, the other reason I was highlighting it is that, um, again, David Klaakawa well, does not start off as like a particularly beloved monarch, but he does become that. And um, one of the first things that he does, and part of the thing he was campaigning on, is again being the friends of American business and the friend of sugar planters. One of the first things that David Kalākaua does as king is he leases Pearl Harbor to the US Navy. And in exchange, the US allows Hawaiian sugar to be imported to the, to the US uh, mainland duty free, no taxes, no tariffs. Uh-huh. And this, this deal to like, lease Pearl Harbor was something that had been discussed during the past two administrations at various intensities. So you see this push and pull going on. But I would say this is the first time foreign troops are landed on behalf of the Hawaiian government to control their own people.
0: How did this come to a head in 1894, was it, you said? Uh,
2: 1893 is the overthrow of Queen Liliuokalani, so I think January 2nd. So, yeah, let's examine the reign of David Kalakaua because I think part of what I was trying to get at there is, again, I just don't want to come off as vilifying David Kalakaua. I mean, maybe he was a better musician than a statesman. I don't know what to (laughs) say, Uh, but he was a beloved uh, monarch. So one of the first things he does is he, um, uh, I'm highlighting the Pearl Harbor thing because it shows who his constituency is, right? Who he's rewarding once he becomes king. And um, so who he's rewarding is this class of sugar planters, right? This this, is... I shot it to call Americans. They're pseudo American. And during his reign, he comes into great conflict with them. And he can, he can, so at first they're his buddies. But during the course of his reign, the relationship begins to sour over several things. First, the status of our Asian immigrant laborers. Shall they have a path to citizenship? Shall they not? Um, two, the status of opium. Shall opium just be a black market drug, or shall we raffle off licenses to, to distribute it, thereby making it a controlled substance. Oh, a big point which, of contention between the king and his, uh, his sugar planter.
0: Which uh, position did he hold?
2: Kalakau wanted to raffle off licenses. Okay, nice. Um, um, oh, the importance of hula in Hawaiian language is governmental function. You know, these, these lords of Hawaii, these sugar planters, they are very New England. So they saw the hula as lavacious and inappropriate at all times. Hmm. <laughs> okay, to be fair, we still totally had one hula where we celebrated the king's genitals. But you you want a guy to have hairs <laughs> for goodness sakes, and you know it. It's nice, nice hula. Um but um yeah, so they you know they had much disagreements about what is appropriate at official government ceremony. Hmm. And here's the one place that I would actually probably support these sugar planters at the time. David Kalaakawa was a very spendy monarch. I believe he put the Hawaiian kingdom truly into debt for the first time. But, you know, the things that he spent money on are like the fact that we had electricity and telephones in our Capitol buildings before the White House and Buckingham Palace. What is the what is the price of those bragging rights? I don't know. You can put a price on bragging rights like that. Mm -hmm. But um uh, yeah, but, it was, but you it know, was expensive if, rain. Yeah, if I was there in 1874, I'd be like, "Your Highness, maybe let's not stay." <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, but um, but yeah, anyway, and then um, so all these fights about these interests of the Hawaiian Kingdom and these internal politics, if you will, they eventually lead to this faction of these like sugar planters and these pseudo Americans. They. They uh, they pull one over on Kalakawa with the help of the judiciary and a bunch of other people and force him to sign this bayonet constitution in 1887, which n- kind of neuters David Kalakawa's power. And I think at that point, David Kalakawa was like, oh, well, fuck you guys. I'm going to go hang out in Kailua Okolai at Kurihe'e Palace. Um, so he kind of, I feel like he gave up a little bit. And, um, and then so when his sister comes to power, when, when Queen Liliu Okolani takes the throne in 1893, she actually inherits all those same fights. Nothing has changed. The immigrant labor fight, opium, importance of language and ceremony and hula, um, and the, you know, accusations about how much money the crown should spend, how much it's allowed to spend, whatever. Um, She inherits all those fights, but she also inherits a new one. She's female. During the election of 1874, we found out, you know, if you look at some of this political advertising, you know, the British, Queen Victoria is ruling like half the world. Um, I should point out, by the way, you know, I talk a lot about Queen Victoria in the English language. We define the era as the Victorian era. But he, I mean, she's a. I mean, <laughs> I had some high school students, Chinese high school students come to the palace one time and they saw a the picture of Queen Victoria. And they said, she's the world's biggest drug dealer. I was like, oh, my God, you're <laughs> right. She was the world's biggest drug dealer. Holy shit. Um, but no, but back to the point, um, you know, so Queen Victoria was like ruling half the world. So the British didn't really have an issue with women in power. But you see the, the opposite side, Kalakaua's side, this pro-American camp is like saying all this stuff like, we must not let the petticoat wear trousers. Women are incapable of running a country. So this is the other this is the other side of the fight that leads to the overthrow of the queen, is that these guys, they are not to be ruled by a woman. Um, so I would say all those things combined lead to enough of a, a political sort of situation where Queen Lili Okolani accuses these sugar planters, these pseudo-Americans of, of, of treason. Now, she doesn't have a prosecutor. She's not bringing charges against... She just says it because she's pissed. Um, And they spin that along with the yellow press and like the first beginnings of mass media uh, into the queen saying that she's going to have them executed because, of course, the the punishment for treason in the Hawaiian kingdom is the same punishment it is for the United States today. Hanging. So, um, yeah, but she wasn't bringing charges. She just accused them of that, but they spun this into a whole thing. And they went to the American plenipotentiary minister at the time, this guy, John L. Stevens. And they told John L. Stevens, Hey, the queen is threatening us. American lives and property are in danger. And at first, John L. Stevens is like, "You guys are American." Um, but then, you know, enough enough money changed hands under the table there, and he's like, "Oh, yeah. So I see you're a dual national. Your your parents came over as missionaries, and they continued to marry American, and so therefore, even though they were born outside the territory of the U.S., you're American citizen. That's um, how that so, works. <laughs> yeah, you have to have if you're born outside the, the territory of the U.S., you have to have both your parents got to be Americans. Um, and then if you're born on the soil of the U.S., you just but." Um, uh, had actually, fun fact. Um, so Keanu Sai got in a bunch of trouble because if his argument is true that Hawaii is just an occupied nation that funny enough really undercuts the whole Obama being a citizen. of the US. <laughs> 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 Um, and so he like kind of withdrew some of his arguments in his, his, his lawsuit at the time with the state department, because he didn't want to complicate it further. You know, it's already a fucking huge issue. So why not? Anyway. Yeah. Who wants to give Donald Trump ammo? Fuck no one. Um, Anyway, um, yeah. Okay. So we were, we were, I was just skating around to the, yeah, they overthrew the queen. These guys are, they're pseudo Americans, right? I mean, I started to call them Americans. They call themselves missionaries, but it's bullshit. There's not a missionary in their political party. It's a political party called the missionary party. And no missionaries in that party. Their grandfathers were missionaries. Sure, sure. But these guys are international mis- businessmen. Anyway, so they appealed to this American minister, uh, John L. Stevens, to, you know, enough money changes hands. And he's like, yes, I agree. We will we will land American Marines to protect American lives and property. Mm-hmm. And so these Marines come and they surround the Yolani Palace and the Yolani Halle. Because somehow our capital and legislative building, our executive capital and our legislative capital buildings are somehow American lives and property. And... Um, yeah, they forced the Queen in the house arrest. These Marines generally occupy Honolulu for some time. And Queen Liliuokalani surrenders directly to the U.S. She does not abdicate as uni places. She surrenders directly to U.S. Uh, as a, these guys that are the ones that had the Marines landed. And so um, when this thing first started, the U.S. president was William McKinley. We go from McKinley to who's the next guy? Grover Cleveland is the next president of the U.S. in 1894, Grover Cleveland, a Democrat. So the U.S. goes from a a Republican to a Democrat in 1894, and the Democrat Grover Cleveland sends a special investigator to Hawaii named James Blount. And James Blount's, the conclusion of his investigation is something to the tune of Landing these Marines was illegal. It was not in the U.S. interest to land these. Men. It was not in the Hawaiian interest to land these. I'm, I'm heavily paraphrasing what James Blount had to say, but the heavily paraphrased part is: Yeah, the America just got taken for a ride by these international businessmen, and American military muscle was used and abused on behalf of these these internationals, this tycoon, for their own good, not the good of the U.S. or the Hawaiian Kingdom. So after that report is done, the Marines leave. But by the time the Marines have left, these sugar planters have hired for themselves a mercenary army called the Honolulu Honolulu Rifles. And so they dig in. Um, There's a couple of battles between them and some Hawaiian nobles, like Prince Kohito and Robert Wilcox. They keep the queen under house arrest um and then we go through this pretty dark time because as these battles intensify they declare themselves now to be the republic of hawaii um from like 1893 to 1898 and that's a really dark three years there are, there are a bunch of phd candidates right now that use the term genocide pretty loose three years hmm. I'm not, i don't know if they're right or wrong but yeah we are talking about a time period where like a you know, notable Hawaiian people, like our Supreme Court judges, you know, people who are outstanding citizens are being disappeared into dungeons. So it's not a, it's not a pretty time, those those three years. And um, during that time, the U.S.'s war with Spain is really heating up. And the U.S. technically has rights to coal their warships at Pearl Harbor as that was, that was leased to the U.S., but no other port in Hawaii because Hawaii is officially a neutral country. Now, the sugar planters, they're doing everything they can to angle for the annexation of Hawaii into the U.S. because they know without that their lives and property will eventually be forfeit at this point. They're a bunch of dicks. So um, so they're really angling for this annexation thing. So at first they're like trying to open up ports, but then they realize it's, it's more in their interest that if the U.S. puts coal ships or puts their warships into other ports that aren't for harbor, they should, you know, hit them with fines and penalties and punish them for that. And this kind of starts um, a domino effect, which leads to, you know, American top military brass and lawmakers being like, well, what the hell? I mean, why don't we just conquer the whole place? That would really help out the war effort, wouldn't it? Uh, so, And that kind of that, along with lots of lobbying and money spurs this, quote, annexation. Um, now, my understanding of annexation in U.S. law and general international is that it requires a treaty. Um, and so what we think of is you know, the tenets of international law today, I'm going to say it hasn't changed much since like 1498. And the treaty of westphalia in europe this is what sets up more or less the modern nation-state system we know today as in a state with a defined territory borders population monopoly of violence and the ability to conduct international relations and these things are kind of codified for european states around that time with the treaty of westphalia and so this you know if you take all that customary law and you bring it more specifically to like domestic u.s law my understanding is that in order to annex land, the U.S. requires that uh, you can have a treaty of annexation, um, which is you know two parties agree that this land is this or that and changing hands for whatever. We saw how that went sometimes in the U.S. with First Nations, um, but there is still a like there's you know the idea is the Europeans have to secure this treaty. That's how their fucking system works. So. Um, yeah so you still have this treaty of annexation or or of course you can have a treaty of conquest think u.s mexico war uh, or yeah uh, well I mean there's lots of examples you can think of for treaties of conquest I'm sure, but when two nations are at war, the winning nation gets to hit the losing nation with whatever they, terms they want, and that can include annexation. Mm-hmm. Um, but Hawaii and the U.S. were never at war. There's no treaty of conquest. There's no treaty of annexation. Um, you know, these guys that were, you know, more or less in de facto military control of Hawaii in 1898, they were still recognized by U.S. lawmakers as not having the authority on behalf of the Hawaiian people or the Hawaiian kingdom. They were recognized as insurgents. So, you know, the U.S. lawmakers understood they could not treat with these guys. Um, yeah,
3: who, But this um, doesn't stop them. Who would have been considered to have been in charge of Hawaii? Uh, before the annexation? Was it just that they didn't know who it was?
2: No, no. So uh, I would say within... So to take it a step back, like uh, I was kind of... I'm calling them pseudo-Americans and sugar planters. These guys are... uh, You probably heard it, but um, these guys are like, you know, descendants of the original American mission. They form a political party called the Missionary Party. And I want to say, I don't know how many people. It's like a thousand, couple thousand maybe within the Missionary Party. And these are all like a lot of your landed uh, wealthy sort of... European types in Hawaii joined this missionary party, and so they're they're quite wealthy because these are the big landowners.
3: But it was still uh, contested between them and Lilio Kalani at this point, right? Yes.
2: Oh, okay. So we need we need to clarify one thing real fast here. So this treaty of conquesting is a big deal, and so if we go all the way back to King Kamehameha III now, with the the writing of the Hawaiian Kingdom Constitution, Kamehameha III was well schooled. You know, I mean, he spoke French, English, and Hawaiian. And so he was well aware of this Treaty of Conquest thing. He took great interest in the Mexican-American War as it happened. Um, So he learned that this is, like, kind of the European game. Like, the Europeans show up, they aggress you. And then when you defend yourself, the Europeans are like, we're at war now. And so we will hit you with a Treaty of Conquest. So during the reign of Kamehameha III, you know, Hawaii is attacked by France twice. They sack Honolulu twice. Um, And Kamehameha III is like, okay, okay, my people, I get it. You're pissed. I get it. We could kill these French guys. We could sink their battleship. But then that means we would be at war with France, and they will send more battleships. And I don't know. So everybody, stay calm. I'm going to write some letters. <laughs> we're going to get this. We're going to get this figured out, you know. And so through diplomacy, he more or less, uh, he more or less, you know, st- same thing. In 1838, actually, the UK was the first country to overthrow and occupy Hawaii. The UK takes over Hawaii for like nine months in 1838. And Kami a third said the same thing. Okay, everybody stay calm. I'm going to write a letter to Queen Victoria. <laughs> so, And we already had a robust diplomatic consul in, in Europe at that time. So he just had to get the letter to them. You know, the people were already out there. Um, uh, so yeah, and it, I mean, that almost sounds naive to me, you know, knowing, knowing what little I know about British history. I mean, how yeah, many people went worked. to the British? Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, they went to the British and they were like, please, sir, can we have our country back? And the British were like, fuck no. But in the case of Hawaii, they were like, yeah, and a oh. new admiral came out and returned the throne to Kamehameha III. Um, and there's a whole ceremony that we can talk about as a whole episode. But the important part here is that, um, yeah, they give they give the throne back to Kamehameha III, and um, and his it, so he basically has a nonviolent foreign policy, and that's what's good for his people. And part of the reason he's such a good diplomat is he's playing this sort of um, competitive international pol- political thing that we see today. Like he's pitting the U.S. against France, against Great Britain to keep them all in check against each other. Guy was a f-ing genius. And so was most of the Hawaiian royalty because they understood the system they were playing with. They were very educated. They knew, they, they, I mean, Kamehameha III went way out of his way to provide for the education, not just for the next generation of royals, but for the whole country. The Hawaiian kingdom may well have been the most literate country on earth. But, you know, I think I'm getting distracted from the questions at hand. Yes,
0: yes. Uh, So Grover sent – President Grover sent someone over to uh, Hawaii to determine – who was in yeah. charge what they could do so
2: you can look him up it's james blount the special investigator james blount b l o um you know today ohana i mean you guys i, I got to tell you i mean again i'm just one guy with a salty opinion and i think you'll find <laughs> i'm like 95% accurate but you, <laughs> there's, there's like a 5% there some of it is on purpose and biased and the other part i'm just forgetting stuff so it's worth double checking but um to i guess to conclude it there i i you know so james blount comes out he finds these guys to be um insurgents they don't have the authority to treat on behalf of the Hawaiian people, which now puts the military side, the Republican military brass side of the U.S., which is advocating the takeover of Hawaii, so they can extend their war and as a military, purely militarily, that's why they're advocating it because they don't want to get in trouble for coaling in parts that aren't pro harbor. They want to use all of Hawaii for the war effort in Spain, and um, now they have an issue because you know the 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 Democrats on the other side that might be willing to work with them, they're saying like, no, we can't treat with these people. There can be no treaty of annexation this is an issue, right? We can't actually move forward with any of these plans. Um, but, you know, I mean, again, enough money and enough lobbying that happens in a very modern way. Things start to change there. And uh, eventually you have this special joint session of the U.S. House and of the U.S. Senate. And so all of the legislators come together for this joint special session in 1898. And they debate this this bill, the annexation of Hawaii, which, again, this is a one-sided bill. It's not a treaty. <laughs> The only mm-hmm. thing that they have on behalf from the Hawaiian kingdom is a surrender of Lidio Kalani. But coming with that is a whole set of stuff that even Grover Cleveland was a pro- promising Queen in- the, Queen in- the Kalani, the U.S. would help restore her to her throne after the means came in and messed it up. So mm. although Lidio Kalani surrendered to the U.S. president, there are now still standing executive orders that the U.S. is supposed to restore the Hawaiian throne, thanks to Grover Cleveland. But that doesn't happen either, either because in 1898, Grover Cleveland comes out of office and a Republican comes back in and it's fucking McKinley again. So McKinley, he actually has a split term, his two terms. He's got his four years and then Grover Cleveland is in the middle and McKinley comes back. But McKinley just like starts pushing this thing through. He's full bore military conquest of like every island in the world. That's what he's in. And so uh, they, they created this special session in 1898. And all the lawmakers come together to debate this bill. And I think my favorite part about it is the first guy to get up and talk is a senator from Texas. And he gets up in front of all of the assembled lawmakers of the U.S. And he says something like, Friends, I'm from Texas. We like annexation. But, But then he says... This isn't annexation. This is illegal, what we're talking about. So, you know, these assembled lawmakers, they knew full and well that what they were doing was not a legal maneuver, um, not legal under U.S. domestic law, for that matter. But they wanted to move forward with this smoke and mirrors thing for you know whatever benefits the u.s saw in this and you know after that that bill is passed they have this annexation ceremony in hawaii where the president of the republic of hawaii stanford b dole so he's you know the not quite the ringleader of that missionary group but he's close um and the president of the republic of hawaii that's accused many horrible crimes has a ceremony with the u.s minister the u.s ambassador where he hands off a blank piece of paper to the U.S. ambassador as per the ceremony. And that paper was supposed to be the Treaty of Annexation, but because there's no Treaty of Annexation, it's a blank piece of paper, and they hand it back and forth, and they have a whole ceremony, and they're like, Hawaii has now been annexed by the U.S., we're now a territory of the U.S. And meanwhile, there were like 9,000 people outside specifically protesting the annexation. Um, Population of Hawaii at the time was probably 90,000 less. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's really, Hawaii was dragged kicking and screaming into statehood. And the argument I would make today is not so much Hawaiian oh, independence re- res- restoration or whatever. It's it's a blue pill matrix thing. Hawaii never stopped mm-hmm. being a sovereign country. The question is, what do we do about that today?
0: So, what? okay, before I ask what we do about it today, because you set me up perfectly for that. But um, before we do that, when uh, I was there and due to the fact that uh, my... Um, partner charlie is uh from hawaii uh i get the impression that the majority of the populace or at least those who aren't like the elites um are still actually kind of upset about this whole thing and do not want to be part of the united states is that am i getting the right impression or is this a minority view um i you know At the risk of undermining my own general
2: position, uh, Hawaii's kind of like Texas. It kind of depends on what day you ask the people. Some days they're going to be like, oh, Johnny, America, Mm Appleseed. And some days they're going to be like, Kuei, fuck that, we're our own country. Um, So, um, you know, that's... uh, I would say, yeah, you facilitate somewhere between 50 to 70%. 70%, so it depends on what day you ask.
0: 50 to 70% support independence?
2: Yeah, or at least, uh, you know, um, a better recognition of what's going on right now. Because did you know... That the indigenous Hawaiian people are not a federally recognized indigenous people of the U.S. That means they receive none of the same protections that other First Nations receive.
0: I did not know that. Uh, this this brings me to a a different question though, which I found fascinating. Uh, you used the term earlier, kama'ina, I think it was Kama'ina? Kamaaina, Kama'ina. and I um I was unaware of this at the time. Uh, like Stephen, for example, was born in Colorado. He considers himself Colorado. I assumed that uh, my partner was Hawaiian. Uh, because not only was she born in Hawaii, but uh, like her parents were, and their parents, um, and she's very steeped in that culture. Uh, but she does not consider herself Hawaiian because that's a term uh, reserved for the actual native Hawaiians. And what is Kamaaina means like neighbor.
2: I mean, the modern day word it means the modern day word means resident of Hawaii. And yeah, then, so that's so... the
0: term most of the people who um, who are like born in Hawaii and of the culture but not actual uh, blood descendants from Native Hawaiians refer to themselves oh, everyone, as, everyone, right?
2: everyone. Kamaina means neighbor.
0: So uh, you said the question is what to do about this, what to do about this then?
2: Yeah, and I would like to just hammer uh, on back on this, this general thing right here, because generally the rhetoric of Dr. Keanu Sai is pretty well thought out. This guy is an international relations expert. He would be considered... Uh, you know I'm definitely my professor so um but he points out that you know the general laws here you know once a na- once a country is under annexation you can't just like move your citizens in and then be like oh they're they're born on the soil of this occupied territory so that means they're also citizens of the occupied nation once the occupied nation's government has been destroyed that doesn't mean that your citizens just get to like you know join that that government if it rejo- if it restarted um, and you can find the, the best example of this is sadly of course um, Palestine, you know, I mean, you can't just move the Israelis to the other side. And then if their Palestinian state comes up, oh, they would be citizens of the Palestinian state, too. Um, I guess when you look at international law, my understanding is that there's two ways that citizenship is usually derived. One is called use solace, and that's, you know, by right of birth on the soil. We We understand that well in the U.S., uh, the other one is use sanguis, which is by right of blood, well, and we also have that in the U.S. Right, if both your parents are American citizens, you are an American. Um, and yeah, in Japan is largely use sanguis, right? This, this right of blood, so did you know the, the citizenship passes down. So once the government is is destroyed, there is no more use solace. It's just use sanguis, which is why I made the distinction between like 370,000 ethnic Hawaiian people, and over 790,000 Hawaiian nationals today. Sadly, I am neither of those categories. But, um, and it would be interesting to note, because for me, if Charlie's family were residents of the Hawaiian kingdom, then they would still have citizenship. They would be Hawaiian national.
0: I believe on at least one of her grandparents' certific- birth certificates, it says kingdom of Hawaii. So Yeah, I And then, but guess. the question
2: is, yeah, I mean, is, is that like a naturalization, like birth certificate for a subject? Because we don't call them citizens, we call them subjects. But same difference. Um... Um, yeah, it mean then then that would mean that Charlie would very possibly be part of the seven hundred ninety thousand. people.
0: Aha, uh-huh. neat. Uh, so, what exactly are they doing? Because I don't know, like they're not taking up arms. How do you agitate for this sort of um, splitting away of the, the the state? Yeah, the
2: Queen basically swore us to nonviolence, um, but. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's two, there's two main camps here and I should, I should take a moment and say, yeah, f- I have, it's been a while since I got out and got all cool with people. I mean, the last time was 2019, for goodness sakes. Like, I mean, when was the last time you even saw half my sovereign friends? It's been a while because 2019 was the big protest on Mauna Kea, right? That was awesome. Like I've seen people I haven't seen in a long time and we were all just hanging out down there at the bottom of the road. They started a little university. I what, did a what, happened, of, like,
0: what happened in 2019 on Mauna Kea?
2: Oh, that's, uh, um, so this, this is like second round of the big protests around the 30 meter telescopes in 2019. From January 2019 to the end of December in 2019, the road was blocked because Hawaiian elders had chained themselves to the road. And then an additional 7,000 people came up to, to like block the road and support them. And so for like six months, no one could go up and down that road, which means that we can't run tours mm-hmm. on Mauna Kea. Mm-hmm. Got it fucking hate the fact monica tour guide but i love it i love the mountain i just Mm -hmm. like and then i gotta take it really serious because like if you're on my band and i hope you were with me it -hmm. wasn't just like oh this is just another fucking package tour it was like no i'm gonna induct you
0: it was fantastic
2: yeah into the knowledge of my home whether or not my elders agree with it if you will um and regardless of what my real position is and again my position is like a hawaiian national in waiting
0: what so uh, what were they protesting specifically that
2: I mean, to say they were protesting the new telescope on Mauna Kea specifically is, is yes and no. I guess I'm, I'm famous for the yes and no. Because um, <laughs> on the one hand, yeah, they're pissed off about the new telescope for various reasons. Um, one, all that land, 33% of all the land in Hawaii is crown lands. They're supposed to belong to the Hawaiian monarch. They're kept in a trust for, quote, the betterment of the Hawaiian people. Um, and that trust was created in 1962, or maybe 1963, and they call it the Seated Lands Trust. Ha! <laughs> ah, it wasn't seated. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, they call it the Seated Lands Trust. I think it's mostly um, administered by DLNR. And then, so they create that trust in 1962 or 1963. And then, five years later, in 1968, the state of Hawaii is like, oh, we're going to parse this land trust and we're going to lease the summit of Mauna Kea to the University of Hawaii at Hilo for a 65-year lease. So that's uh, 1968 to 2030. And of course, you know, as far as I can tell, there was not a single Hawaiian person in that room when the trust for, quote, the betterment of the Hawaiian people was parsed. Uh, But that's how things was back in the 19... Um, But then, you know, I mean, Mauna Avaakea is Hawaii's sacred mountain, so... You know, every single telescope on that mountain was protested by the Hawaiian people in one way or another. The first telescope was built up there in 1968. The second telescope was built up there in 1970. And that one in 1970, the UH 88 inch telescope. The 2.2 2 meter, you the University of Hawaii one, it has a schnoz. It's the one, it's the white one that looks like it's got a schnoz. Oh, yeah. Um, and so that's the one from 1970. And that's the one they destroyed the original summit of the mountain to build. I don't remember how much they took off the top, like 60 feet. But it, that up there at the summit is, of course, where people kept their altars mm-hmm. and spiritual mm-hmm. sites. Not everybody got a chance to move those things before the university summarily destroyed the area. That opens a pretty deep trust right, between the Hawaiian community and the, the university. Um, despite those protests and whatnot, telescope building continues at pace. And it's not until 1987 that the university gets around to discussing the management on all of with the Kahu, the traditional caretakers. And they come to a written agreement, which states, and I quote, there should be no more than 13 telescopes on the summit of Mauna Ke'a. Uh, and before a new one is built, an older telescope shall be removed, and the land returned to its natural state. End quote. So, this thirty-meter telescope is Telescope fourteen. And while I can make some decent defenses for the university on why it's Telescope fourteen, I cannot defend how stupid of a choice that was. I mean, if they had followed their general agreements understanding, they would have pissed off what ten percent of the. Uh, the fact that they just like arrogantly bulldozed forward, um, really. I mean, even even if there even if there are defenses about why they did that it still looks really bad from like a political optical standpoint. Like you guys, where's your PR person? (laughs) Because you fucked up. Um, uh, So, I mean, I would say those are kind of the main gist, at least for me, that's what I tell everybody. You know, if I have to encapsulate this thing down to a few minutes, those are some of the main points of why the protests were happening. But, you know, here's the thing, real fast, the telescope is almost a casualty, right? I mean, the greater issue here is, is like a rhetorical yes or no question. Do native people get to control native land? That's probably more what's happening there. I mean, the telescope, yes, but anyway, go for it, you guys. Is
0: there is there any way to actually go forward and have independence reinstated? Because it does. I don't. I don't see the U.S. giving up control uh, without some sort of insurrection happening.
2: Well, good news. I mean, we don't actually have to fucking talk about independence for the Hawaiian people to reassert claims to their land, right? Or at least I should mm-hmm. hope not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Some people are more intense than others. Um, you know, I've been in rooms. Where everybody's all, ku-ay, ku-ay. I've been in rooms. Where everybody's all, ku-ay, ku-ay, We independent country. We're going to tell the U.S. who boss Blah, blah, blah. And then somebody brought up king and queen, and then nobody gets along, which is why that issue is now <laughs> on the back burner. Okay. we put that all the way over there. We'll deal with that ideally in a hundred years or whatever. But um
0: What does Kuwait um, mean?
2: Kue is like attack, but it's also ah. like it just means like aggression or I mean I maybe I should bring up the strict definition. But um uh yeah but you know the rooms that we will be independent and I'm over there like brah, you ever you ever read about Kurdistan? Mm-hmm. No <laughs> you ever heard of Catalan my brother? You never oh I never heard of that place? Maybe you should wiki that shit before
0: <laughs> Yeah. Oh. So if I guess the first question I have is like, if there is a greater independence one, is there any plans for uh, what to do with the people like yourself who are not um, nationals? Like what would happen?
2: Um, you know, I would, I mean, I'm advocating, well, first off, I, I, I no matter what anybody wants to say, I'm going to just go ahead and say that um, if you want to, you know, build or rebuild or rejuvenate a nation, you know what you need? Hmm. Everyone you need everyone, you need everyone that's willing to get aboard. You need every single person, so it would not be wise to make it exclusive um but you know there's no real consensus about any of these things, but I would say, yeah, personally, you want everybody, anybody that's on board, given whatever the whatever the Hawaiian kingdom decides is the naturalization test, that can be it, pass it or don't um but like, back in the day, Robert Crichton and Wiley would make people burn and spit on the flags of their home countries should they like to become a Hawaiian kingdom national. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say because at, at some level here, what's going on, and it's funny because, you know, listening to you guys' previous episodes, you guys are talking about monarchy like, you know, philosophical exercise. Yeah, yeah. I don't get to pick the form of my government, right? So, yeah. um, that being said, oh, I do. I do get to pick the form of my government, correct? And it's a question of loyalty. And that's the part that I have solved for myself. But um yeah what happens next I don't know let's say let's say the Hawaiian king comes back and we get a noble that's a total fucking asshole and he's like everybody out if you're not at the Hawaiian you got to get out of the fucking country well I'm gonna lobby against that I'm not gonna like kill anybody over it and if I get kicked out of the country then so be it if I carried the torch that far and then I got fucked over I don't even care
0: Hmm. okay uh there are you familiar with the I think it's the independence project where uh a whole bunch of think it was libertarians wanted to move to New Jersey and turn it like into a, a libertarian enclave. I don't think there's nearly as many monarchists in the U S but if someone did want to try to help support a monarchy breakaway state, uh, would, do you think a bunch of people from the U S trying to move to Hawaii to help, uh, would they be welcome there? Would this be at all something reasonable?
2: Shit, man. Um, so A. Hey. To define kue is to oppose, resist, protest, oppose versus adverse, contrary, antagonistic, unwilling, objection. Um, How to cause opposition, to stir up resistance. Any, um uh yeah, I don't know about that, man. Um, I think I think support for indigenous people's rights is that's there. You go. That's that's what we need to do first and foremost, because that's part of the issue and that's part of the reason why I am so all in. Because what we see today is not the final form of relation between the Hawaiian Kingdom and the U.S. government. What this final form of relation will look like, I don't know, but it's not done. Um, okay, so probably so, a bad
0: idea for uh, outsiders to try to go I there think, and support monarchy.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, in the sense that, like, it makes me uncomfortable. You brought this up on tour, and she said, um, "I forget what you called it." This movement to restore monarchy—that's fucking weird, my man. I don't know about restoring the shit when it's a cultural tradition. I don't know. I think it's important to uphold traditions, but yeah bringing it back like you know no I can't I can't i mean I have so much to say on that point, but it requires a discussion of the nation state system and what a nation is right
1: yeah
0: would would there be how would they decide at least who the um the 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 senate would be who the prime minister would be that sort of thing is there anything any plans in the works for that, or is this yeah. something that we figure out once we've gotten further down the road?
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, there's a couple opposing camps. So one of the camps really wants to like move forward with the the nation within a nation sort of blood quantum ethnic thing that we see with other First Nations. They uh, tried to start a, a voter roll in like 2014, maybe 2013. It was called Ka Ui Noa. and so they tried to just get everybody to sign up that was whatever whatever their qualifications were for a Native Hawaiian person. You uh, tried so to start a build these voters. A voter roll, like just like voter registration uh, to see how many voters would be available to uh, vote in a potential election for the Hawaiian kingdom. And at this point, right, all of the qualifications we used to have in the constitution are just kind of being laughed off. Uh, They just want anybody that's uh, ethnically Hawaiian to uh, register. And so, but the generalized plan would be once you get your population of whoever's going to be the voters, like what's this Hawaiian kingdom citizenship look like, uh, then they vote in the house of commons. We technically know more or less who the House of Lords would be because that's a, t- t- that's a titled thing. Mm-hmm. But once the House of Commons is assembled, and that's totally, that's, that's direct democracy, just like the UK. That's just the people vote for the representative. Once that's assembled, then that can help sort out issues for the House of Lords. And now we have our two chambers of legisl- legislators are now convened. And with those, they can elect the prime minister from among themselves, <laughs> and fill the ministerial positions, and fill the court position, court justice.
0: Okay. Has anyone ever proposed um, putting a proposition to the um, general populace to vote on to secede from the Union? Mm. Uh, again, my argument is that we never join.
2: You can't secede if you never see.
1: That's a good point. Um, but didn't they to... join on paper?
2: Um, yeah, I don't know where the paper is. Lydia Okolani surrendered to the U.S. and was promised that her throne would be returned. That's what we got on paper.
1: I see. Yeah, I guess uh, I just figured like it. it it's... Disappointing, and for the one thing, I guess I realize I've not spoken in like an hour. This has been an awesome history lesson. Your uh, your profession as a like lecturer is really coming through. I, I I guess this is good and bad. I learned more in the last hour about the history of Hawaii than I did in my entire education up until this hey, point. So, I'm <laughs> glad to hear
2: that. So, don't, and I just want to say real fast, Stephen, don't you be afraid to tell me you're fucking wrong or an idiot, <laughs> Travis. That's oh, go for it. All good.
1: No, I don't know. I you, you, I. So far, I have nothing uh, to contribute uh, on that score. But no, I just meant like it's a bummer that 12 years of primary education in the U.S. and we probably touched on Hawaii at some point, but not a lot to give me any context. The motion to, to, to secede, I guess, like, yeah, presumably it's on paperwork somewhere. But I, I'm sure that, you know, this This had the historical context of an annexation, which is like, okay, well, fuck us, I guess, if you say so. Like, how, how do you uh, – th- I don't think that there's a way to convincingly argue with the country that kind of came in and said, we live here now. so
2: Well, you know, let's talk about that for a second here, because, you know, for the first time ever in 2015, there are more hula halalos outside of Hawaii than in Hawaii. Fuck, there's poke restaurants in, like, the middle of fucking Wyoming at this point. Yeah, um, bunch.
0: What are hula halalos?
2: Sorry, um, I didn't know to uh, that. Sorry, hula halalos are hula schools. Uh, I guess my point here is the ascendancy in general of Hawaiian culture and Hawaiian language. I mean, it's getting, it's coming back strong. Um, Aloha Aloha will eventually conquer the world. (laughs) Uh, Aloha being love, by the way. Uh, So um, that part, you know, it's interesting. I mean, only only since the 70s, the Hawaiian Renaissance began. And since the 70s, we went from having an almost extinct language to having like 10,000 people that speak it fluently. And many of them aren't even ethnically Hawaiian. Um, and so it, it actually, the 10,000 is like ethnic aliens, But The people who aren't ethnic Hawaiians that speak the language are growing too. Um, um, yeah, I guess, and let me put it this way. Because again, I've been in rooms where everybody's got different ideas. I personally, I'm, here's, here's what I'm saying. I don't want to see that independence referendum anytime soon. Because when it happens, I want to win. And so that means I probably have to wait like a century. <laughs> um, this is not something that is worth chasing it's kind of like the telescope you know the things in the heavens they don't change much every year you know we measure them in the hundreds of millions of fucking years what if we wait 20 years to build the telescope who cares i mean have patience um and in that regard we're talking about a hole that's 130 years old the queen was overthrown in 1893 you're gonna walk back out of that hole it's gonna take you 130 years That's a multi-generational project. It's going to be your grandkids that's declaring independent. In the meantime, though, all of these little things are important battles for the Hawaiian people so that they have better lives. All of these little things are going to be important battles for the residents, the non-ethnic Hawaiian people of Hawaii will have better lives. There's a lot of things we can do to shirk off some federal government bullshit. Um, But, you know, when I start to put it like that, you know, my issues start to sound like who's paying taxes to who and for what and what laws apply when you leave that military base kind of sound like any other state doesn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think these are all important questions. And again, you know, f- pushing forward and progressing and advancing, um, at some level here, the cause of the Kanaka is very important to me. Um, and this this happens to be the nation that they founded. This happens to be the nation that they're trying to restore with different strategies. Some people, again, want to embrace the nation within the nation. Other people want to continue to use the UN uh, to pressure the US. Um, and the Hawaiian Kingdom has appeared in the International Court of Justice over a dozen times at this point. So... Yeah, I don't know what comes next, but I think I think if independence is like someone's goal, there's a couple of things we're gonna to have to do. First off, we got to become a net Im, a net exporter of tax revenue as opposed to a net importer. You know, I remember I had a guy in my car one time. He's was all "cue cue," and I'm like, "Who do you think paid for this highway?" <laughs> Thanks, federal government. You know, so there's an aspect here of like, you want to declare independence tomorrow? We're all gonna be broke as fuck, my man, and we're all gonna starve. Because we um, we we import ninety six percent of our food stuff.
1: Texas is a similar pit- t- vibe. Yeah, th- that's
2: why. So I'm glad to hear. I've never been to Texas. Now I've, I you know I went to North America once for like a couple of days. You know I really wasn't there. Uh, so I've never been to Texas, uh, but I always assumed there's kind of a, a similar vibe to Hawaii in that regard?
1: Oh yeah. Let me let me qualify that. I've I've changed planes in Texas once. No, what I meant is that there's <laughs> a, there's an attitude, at least that I've encountered a line of you know. Uh, Texan independence, desirability, that sort of thing. But they are also one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, like receivers of federal benefits. And so if they successfully seceded, they'd just be immediately fucked like a week later. Um, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, A a retreat plan definitely needs to be in order.
2: Yeah. And so I I hear you on that 100%. We want to be serious about this goal. And I'm relatively serious about this goal. I just, again, I'm really a long-term thinker. So um yeah, yeah, we're, we're gonna do about that. So uh, first off, we should probably bring back agriculture. Unlike Texas, we can grow whatever the fuck we want in Hawaii all year <laughs> round, all year round, potentially one of the most agriculturally productive places in the world, and we have no agriculture. So that needs to change. And part of bringing back the agriculture should should come with, you know, indigenous people getting back the land to do indigenous agriculture and indigenous stuff with proper subsistence. So that would make us more food secure. That's going to take a generation or more. Um, also, Here's one that people like to bring up all the time, too, is the Jones Act. So this one is a little bit more concrete, if you will. Mm -hmm. The Jones Act requires that any goods coming from a foreign country to the U.S. must first go into an internationally licensed U.S. port. And the goods from that ship must be put upon a U.S.-made vessel with a U.S. crew. And then it can be distributed to a domestic U.S. port. So this adds lots of money to the shit that we're importing Because sometimes it has to go past us to the port of L.A. and then come back. So there's a cost of living aspect there that I think is, oh, here's another cost of living thing. First off, how many Hawaiians is in jail thanks to minor drug offenses for marijuana? That's fucking insane. Marijuana is not even an illegal substance. So um, that, that's the tragedy on its own right. But you know what else is a tragedy? Once upon a time, Hawaii was famous for our weed. You know, <laughs> not even that long ago. It's just like a couple of decades back. Everybody knew what fucking Maui Wow. And now what? Now ca- fucking Colorado is kicking our asses.
1: Even Sorry. I've heard of Maui Waui and I am... <laughs> uh not a, a drug enthusiast
2: yeah i'm just saying like if we could just like grow some weed and put hawaii's name on it that but come on amsterdam let's go
1: it's worked great for colorado's uh, revenue
2: yeah exactly and so i mean i think i think but that's to you know, see i guess what i'm getting at here and i i don't want to come off ever too extreme because i'm talking about the history of two nations and i'm trying to talk about their relationship um and that relationship is so fucking intertwined that sometimes it's hard to tell where one begins and the other ends and um, and honoring that thing as a whole means that yeah these little fights that Hawaii is gonna have I hope to assert kind of greater control I I hope that it will be it will be a positive sort of ripple effect because we're all kind of in a, still a greater commonwealth a greater sort of federal system and the states still have a lot of rights and that's a good thing I mean but if we could play on what the states' rights look like we could even potentially just take off the the current Hawaiian state constitution and replace it with the Hawaiian kingdom. Um, I don't know. There's there's a lot of ways this could go, and um, but yeah, if we want to get to the military thing real fast, um, you know, that's the other one. I want per, uh, we want Pearl Harbor gone. Pearl Harbor gotta get out of here. Mm. Okay, how are you gonna get rid of Pearl Harbor, my brother? We gonna call in the People's Liberation Army. <coughs> what the fuck? Um, look, look, I, I'm okay. Look, um, we're quickly approaching the maximum of the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. Um, so Pearl Harbor's probably not going anywhere. And more to the point you know, within the Hawaiian community, only about half of these ethnic Hawaiian people live in Hawaii. The other half live abroad. And one of the more popular states is, states for Hawaiian people is West Virginia. Um, and the reason West Virginia is because so many is involved in the U.S. military. Uh, within your like 790,000 Hawaiian citizens today, these national Hawaiians, some of them are high-ranking military officers. They have access to American nuclear secrets. The defense of Hawaii and the U.S. are pretty intertwined. I don't know how you unentwine that. I have no answers. to um, and more to the point, so much Hawaiian blood and treasure has already been dif- spilt in the defense of the United States that I see no reason necessarily to untangle it. Hawaiians fought on both sides of the War of 1812, both for and against the United States. Hawaiians fought on both sides of the U.S. Civil War. Hawaiians fought in the British versus Zulu War. I guess that's a different point. But hey, famously, though, a Hawaiian man beheaded a Moroccan prince. He got a medal from Queen Victoria herself. Um, and of course, Hawaiians fought in every major American conflict since. Then.
0: So, what is? I, I, we're running out of time, so we should probably wrap up. What is the one thing that makes you most optimistic right now for uh, for a this sort of return of power to the Hawaiians in the future?
2: I think when I say this, I, I mean I want to qualify it. There's, there's, of course, there's a lot of there's a long way to go. But mm-hmm. you know, I would say North America, not just not just the U.S. but Canada. We're seeing a little bit of a reckoning, you know, with the indigenous voices and indigenous knowledge. And we're seeing them getting more respect. And I hope it continues that trend there. That's all very positive. I mean, it's like, you know, the Pope just apologized for that shit up in Canada. And it's like, hey, I didn't expect that to happen. Uh, But that's nice. He has some nice words. Now what you gonna do about it, Pope, man? Uh, so yeah, I, uh, so I, that part gives me, I mean, as far as like for Hawaii and this, this greater thing, the greater respect for indigenous people that I feel like is growing is good. It's good. It's not just good for the indigenous people. It's good for the United States.
1: Do you have a good go-to source, since I won't be able to make a tour on your bus at any point in the near future, any source for future uh, research that you can point us towards?
2: Um, there's a couple books that I would just throw to start with. One of my favorite ones is a book called The Legends and Myths of Hawaii. Uh, oh, you know what? I mean, I'm, I'm just going to tell you some good beginning books. It's just like Hawaiian history. Uh, anyway, my favorite ones to just good starters. There's a book called The Legends and Myths of Hawaii, written by King David Kalakaua. Oh, it's a great book. It's like 30 plus short stories, Hawaiian short stories, legends and myths. And you'll see Kalakawa has this thing he likes to do where he's trying to make like the myths like it's real historiography. And, you know, it, it, he gets close because it's probably true. I mean, where does especially in a, a society that doesn't have writing, where the interplay between truth and, and legend is hard to say. So uh, but very good. And David Kalakawa being the fan he was of world mythology, having volumes on Chinese, Egyptian, Babylonian um north european african mythology <laughs> he wanted to add a hawaiian mythology the world lexicon which is this book the legend and the myths of hawaii by Kalaka. So it's got a bunch of great history i mean it's got a bunch of great short stories but the first part of it is like a foreword on hawaiian history and the origin of the hawaiian people very good um give him a mulligan he wrote that book in seven you know when you get to the anthropology section just just get ready we don't use terms like that no more um another really good book um it's actually, uh, I like this one a lot because it's a big, ugly yellow book, so it's easy to find. <laughs> uh, the big, ugly yellow book is called The Rise and Fall of the Hawaiian Kingdom. So obviously I got issues with the title, but it's good. <laughs> It's by Dick Wisniewski. Don't ask me how to spell Wisniewski. Uh, but this guy put together a good book. Um, partially it's good because he has lots of pictorials. Yeah, like I say, the whole point is it's a big, ugly yellow book with a pictorial history. So you have all the big, long Hawaiian names and he got the portraits of the people there to help it straight. So it's a good book. The, the, Rise and Fall of the Hoenn King by uh, Dick Wisniewski. We sell that one in our gift shops. And then another really good one, if you want to know more about those pseudo-American sugar planters I love so well, (laughs) um, there's a book called Unfamiliar Fishes uh, by a historian you guys might have even heard of. Her name is Sarah Vowell. Uh, V-O-W-E-L-L. This is a really good beginner Hawaiian history book, if only because she gets you right into like the history of the missionaries. And um, she herself is one of the snarkiest historians you've ever read in, her, in your life. When I first started reading, I was like, how's this chick? You know, I, like, why why are you, you throwing in? But then as I got into it, I loved it. Um, and then one more to throw out. And this one is, the, of course, the big shout out for my four books to go here. It's called Ua Kea. Uh, but it's by Dr. Keanu Sai. And um, getting Dr. Keanu Sai's book is a good start there. Um, you can also find pretty much his, his original doctoral thesis and most of what's in the book on his website, cool. if, uh
0: Is there, for the more online sort of uh, people, is there like website? Is there a podcast? Anything like that that is easier to consume like on your phone while you're, I don't know, standing in line at a DMV as well?
2: You know, I'm um, oh, trying to find Dr. Kiana's website right now. Yeah, hawaiankingthegoverment.org and the blog that goes with it should be relatively accessible on the phone. And That's on cool. that on that website, you can find the Hawaiian Kingdom constitution, too. And you'll find it was a great. Uh, uh, great constitution. Uh, everything that should be illegal is illegal. <laughs> uh, um, most committed crime in the Hawaiian Kingdom serious riding, speeding on your horse. But, um, uh, but then the other part too is um, besides like, you can find the penal code and the criminal code, all that, whatever. But you also find the text of the constitution and you'll find that Kamehameha III, besides stealing the organs of Britain, you know, the House of Lords, House of he felt that he was worried the common people would continue to be taken advantage of by the nobles. So Kamehameha third gave his people the bill of rights. Article one, the, life, the right to life, liberty, and the protection of your property. Article two is the freedom to worship as your conscience dictates. And Article 3 was like a freedom of assembly and speech. I mean, we still had a law against insulting the king, but it's a great constitution. He took what was good about France and the UK, mixed it up, left behind what he didn't like, took what he liked, put it into Hawaiian language, and boom, the Hawaiian Uh kingdom constitution.
0: Uh, well travis is there anything you want to leave us with before we wrap up here <laughs> I
2: know we've been uh, going for
0: quite a while so if no, there is I, I list... love it
2: and, and you know gentlemen I I look forward to maybe even hearing your dissection of the, the stuff that I said because I suspect you'll find some inaccuracies that, I'll be honest with that but I'm close yeah so I guess on final I'll have to because I've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now like oh my god I gotta do this podcast these guy's <laughs> episodes they're freaking two hours man I gotta I gotta listen to some before I do the podcast but oh my god I want two hours And then anyway, I I finally got to it. And I I do. I like the show. I think you guys do a good job. I look forward to hearing your your dissection and discussion of it. But okay, so closing remark. Sorry. I promised my Bulgarian buddy, Anton, who recently got way into Sad Guru's topsoil campaign, the biggest threat facing our species is topsoil erosion. Uh, And it's one of the most soluble things that we could take care of, you know. Um, this is an artificial crisis. If we just paid attention to our soil, we could stop this soil. Um, but this was the first thing that people brought up, you know, Thomas Malthus and the population bomb. Before anybody was talking about global warming and nuclear annihilation, we were already like, oh my God, the top is eroding. So yeah, so I promised my Bulgarian buddy I would throw out the top soil erosion.
0: Excellent. <laughs> it'll be in the episode. And if you have like a link that we can link to, we'll put that in the show notes. Oh yeah, I'll get back to you on that. Um, Cool. But yeah, thank you. Thank you, three. And
2: um, I look forward to uh, your your next episodes and episodes into the future.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure having you on. And I certainly learned a lot. Yeah, same yeah, here. Thank, this
1: was great. I really appreciate it. And uh, oh, nice. thanks for accommodating the technical difficulties and time difference.
0: All right. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Mahalo, you guys. Hey, right. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Me too. Aloha. All right. Well, shall we move into the less wrong posts? Let's
1: that sounds like a good plan. It.
0: The first less wrong post we had this week was argument screens off authority, which makes the, well, basically the exact argument that is in the title, that a good technical argument is one that eliminates reliance on the personal authority of the
1: speaker. Uh, assuming, of course, that the listener has enough technical ability to process the argument. Back, remember in the old uh, awesome days of arguing with the religious people in the heyday of New Atheism? Mm-hmm. People would be like, well, you know, you just believe the universe is thirteen whatever billion years old because that's what scientists say what's fun about it is like yeah but in principle i could go learn all that shit for myself and either conclude or uh you know something that concurs with that or otherwise but like the fact is like if stephen hawking says that uh the universe is 13 point whatever billion years old like that actually is evidence that it is uh, like so so it's not it's not true because he's saying it it's it's that because stephen hawking is saying it i can trust that it's true right yeah I, I believe the quote from the post is if something is true,
0: then it therefore tends to have arguments in favor of it, and the <laughs> experts therefore observe these evidences and change their opinions. In theory. <laughs> so if we see that an expert believes something, we infer back to the existence of evidence in the abstract. And from the existence of this abstract evidence, we infer back to the truth of the proposition. But he points out, if you know the value of the argument node,
1: this separates the truth from the expert belief. So you don't need the expert. Mm-hmm. Right. If I if I do um, I'm trying to think of literally anything I've a sufficient amount of expertise in that I wouldn't trust someone who knew more than me about it. Um, well, I guess I wouldn't need to trust. I wouldn't need to trust them. Uh, more than me. Did it's you just say like, sinks?
3: steven has <laughs> been taking apart a lot of sinks lately.
1: Oh yeah. That's nice. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, if someone tried to sell me on some whatever, or, you know, another stupid pointless example, but I had, uh, some whatever, uh, air duct cleaning done a couple years ago and the guy's trying to sell me on like some $75 air filter. And is was explaining how it was awesome and reusable because you needed to wash it and, you know, like then it would be reusable. And I'm like, no, nah, are you fucking kidding? I'm not going to wash something that is supposed to catch like pollen. Mm-hmm. It's, it'll never, ever get dry. Like even I know that. And I'm an idiot. So anyway, um, <laughs> and he, did, he didn't convincingly argue. You know, if he had given me a good argument, maybe I would have believed him. But his argument was I had I a coupon for like a $20 air duct <laughs> cleaning and that wasn't enough for him to make a trip out here. So he tried to sell me on something worth his money or worth his time. But mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh,
0: uh the the point is made that uh if uh th- these two things are asymmetrical because if you know uh, what the authority thinks you're still interested in hearing the arguments
1: but if you know the arguments fully you have very little left to learn from authority that's a really good point i'm sufficiently versed in like uh biological evolution that i don't need to lean on well richard dawkins says this um uh, for me to have an opinion on something So if I want to hear his take, it's really because I'm curious, right? Yeah. He does end with the caveat that in practice, you can never completely eliminate reliance on authority.
0: Good authorities are more likely to know about any counter evidence that exists and should be taken into account. So, you know, this is more of an ideal, but it's also an important thing to to know and to consider that, like, the arguments are are more important than the credentials of the people making the arguments.
3: Mm. Seems like a good or important thing to keep in mind, too kind of inoculate yourself against the argument for authority if you find yourself making it or someone else makes an argument from authority you can Mm -hmm. think like does this argument stand on its own if it wasn't a quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson or and uh pointed out also that like you should be able to follow like the chain of logic and have evidence it just yeah sort of like re-clarifying what they mean by a good technical argument
1: yeah i feel like this was a timely post again explaining the difference between argument from authority and argument bolstered by authority because this was during that kind of heyday of online argument as reminiscing on well that brings us to the next post hug the query it
3: was a good little query
1: (laughs) (laughs) for some reason the name just doesn't roll off the tongue maybe because hug the query is whatever uh i liked the quote and i remember this from probably the first time i read it and i've didn't know who to attribute it to i've been in my head attributing it to Yudkowski, but he's citing somebody named jerry cleaver what does you win is not a failure to apply some high-level intricate complicated technique it's overlooking the basics not keeping your eye on the ball and that, that's my one sentence summary of this like just actually remember what the hell it is you're talking about yeah
0: he's he's saying that yeah since arguments screen off authority you always want to get as close to the original question as possible to screen off as many other things as possible he gave the example of the wright brothers who were you know accomplished bicycle makers and, you know, amateur physicists and Lord Kelvin, who, uh, did not think that something heavier than air could fly. And Lord Kelvin obviously had a lot more authority, but if you were to get arguments from both of them, uh, the Wright brothers' arguments would probably be better. Uh, and if you were just to directly observe their prototype plane flying, then you don't even need the arguments. Uh, so the closer you get to the, the thing in question without intermediate inferences, such as
1: arguments or authorities, uh the more powerful the evidence is it's always kind of a fun just powerful move if you're in an argument with somebody and they're like oh yeah what's your evidence because you're trying to explain like why you think a plane could fly and mm-hmm. you just point to the thing in the sky over there You're like there yeah. there's my proof mm-hmm. and it's like suddenly oh okay i don't i don't need to follow your math anymore i i can see what you see <laughs> mm-hmm. observation counts for a lot of
0: evidence and he points out that if you can point to close arguments or even better direct evidence you don't it, it doesn't, the rationality aspect of someone doesn't remember. He asks, it uh, doesn't matter. He asks, who was more rational, the Wright brothers or Lord Kelvin? If we can check their calculations, we don't have to care. The virtue of a rationalist cannot directly cause a plane to fly. And he points out that if you forget this principle, learning about more biases will hurt you because it will distract you from more direct arguments. Uh, if there are biased reasons to say the sun is shining, that doesn't make it dark out.
3: Good point there, too. I remember back in the heyday of atheists arguing with religious people there were like the people who got so obsessed with cognitive biases that they would memorize them and it was mm. clearly just like people trying to win debates rather than actually figure out what the truth was or like mm. probably some of both but that instinct to just kind of memorize all the biases so you can be like aha that's a straw man aha that's you know is <laughs> not really keeping your eye on the ball there
1: yeah as somebody who it, did probably memorize kind of the name of.
3: sometimes. Yeah,
1: i probably memorized the names of 20 or 30 logical fallacies and had fun noticing them and pointing them out i'd like to think i was a you know young little truth seeker back then but it's i was gonna say it's entirely plausible let's be real i was almost definitely uh you know biasly pushing my own positions just like i probably am now but i'm hopefully more aware of it now in in summary try to screen off further uh further
0: out inferences if you can uh because the closer in ones are always have better, more information, and uh, hug the query. Get as close as you can at all times. These two went really quick because I thought they were just, you know, quick, solid, tells you exactly what you need to know.
1: No, yeah, I mean, it says what it is right on the box. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, for next time, our two less wrong posts will be Guardians of the Truth and Guardians of the Gene Pool.
1: Not to be confused with anything nefarious.
0: No, no. (laughs) And one last thing before we go, we have to thank the patron who brought us all this wonderful information today and learning about
1: the history of Hawaii. Uh, who is thinking the patron today? All right, I'll jump on this one. We forgot to grab you last week, Michael K. Sorry about that. But big double shout out for Michael K. This fortnight, we appreciate you, your support. I always feel weird saying thanks to people, but I give, I support a lot of stuff on Patreon or online, various platforms. And I like that we've moved to like a method of consumption of stuff where you can just like support content creators directly but the idea that like someone actually likes this enough to give us money still blows my mind so thank you yeah thank you michael uh you've helped bring this to everybody and everybody is grateful to you for it
0: I'm trying to think of a joke of a hawaii uh we're glad that you did not bring in the u.s military to <laughs> overthrow our podcasting government
1: you know not all of our jokes can be winners but that's, that's uh <laughs> no reflection on you michael that's just a reflection on us and it's been an overcast day today i think everyone's running a little hazy so anyway that's all i've got thanks guys for joining us thanks everybody for listening and we will see you all in two weeks
3: bye everybody
0: see ya